Welcome to another episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Lucy Hounsom. I'm Charlotte Bond. And I'm Megan Lee. So violence has long been a recognised part of science fiction, fantasy and horror. Whether it's an extraterrestrial dogfight or a sweeping epic fantasy battle in the style of Helm's Deep, readers and viewers are used to seeing us kick the crap out of each other. But is the level of violence we're used to seeing really necessary? Can we tell stories without having to rely on gratuitous conflict? Or is conflict the very nature of humanity? So many of the popular subgenres um, are set up around kind of the idea of violence. I mean, military, SF, sword and sorcery, um, even the titles of these subgenres um, contain violence and uh, directly allude to it. Um, so, you know, and pointed out when we were preparing for this I mean that she's completely right there are so many stories that that end climactically in a violent battle um what why is this why is this case why do we have to have this this violent climax to to finish off our stories well if I could start by maybe not taking us into the genre of um science fiction fantasy or horror but just turning for a complete contrast to romance uh, in my my hated days, I did a romance course about how to write Mills and Boone novels. Um, and one of the things that we learned about that was that conflict always drives the story. And in romance, the conflict is always a personality, particularly if you read Mills and Boone, you've got the very, very definite alpha hero. And then the sort of beta heroine who has to be both vulnerable and spunky at the same time. And there's virtually, there's a few duels and sword fighting what you'd expect in Mills and Boone and but generally it's driven by personalities and everything else that you can think of so apart from romance pretty much everything else is driven by both personality and situations and I think if you look at um, science fiction movies if we think about that um, not so much in the in the books but certainly in the movies and horror movies then peril is actually used as an extra motivator so in romance you've got things like oh I'm I must marry the heir so that I can you know uh, save my mother from the workhouse and things like that whereas in science fiction and horror they have all that kind of stuff but they also throw in an extra dose of peril as well just to kind of motivate people and, and keep them going mm. yeah but do they i wonder because a lot of the as you've said you know uh, i mean they obviously have the you know we're used to seeing violence in a very physical um you know, it's it's very kind of in our faces, and and what you were talking about the violence of um, of characterization and the violence of situation, like situational violence, saying like you know you have to save someone from the workhouse. I mean, that's such a is that any less powerful than kicking the crap out of each other? I mean, I I find like that kind of idea of not necessarily psychological violence, but the threat of of if uh, somebody's situation changing um, for the worse is, you know, probably as powerful as, uh, as seeing orcs trashing Helm's Deep. Well, it relates to a different part of you. So, again, going back to the whole idea of the Mills and Boone romance is whatever their core they're fighting for has to be something you can really understand. So it's got to be this fight for survival or the fight to um, live well or, like you say, to save someone from the workhouse. And I think the fight for survival is perhaps the most basic thing that we can all think about and that we can all relate to and you know irrelevant of how much food you've got how much money you've got in the bank something like that if it really comes down to it which they do in sort of sci-fi and horror and in certain extents fantasy it's all about this one idea of just fighting for survival and going back to cavemen days it, it was all about violence wasn't it it was about trying to 
stay alive, not necessarily to marry the heir, but to, you know, to actually just literally physically stay alive. And I think that's something that speaks to all of us, but is also very naturally violent. What I don't really understand is why the conflict has become so centred around violent conflicts when it comes to science fiction and fantasy. But things like, you know, when you look at uh, the film Arrival, say, I feel like that's one of the very, very few science fiction films I've seen which doesn't climax with, a, you know, a, a violent set piece. And these these stories just tend to always have, you know, you have the, the personal conflict, the, the personal motivators and drivers that, that really drive the plot, what makes the plot interesting throughout the rest of a book or film. But it always comes down to this final massive battle, you know, in in almost all the, the books I read and even the ones that sort of try to throw up a lot of the, you know, invert the tropes and, and they still come down to these big battles at the end and they've got to overcome the baddie but the only way that we can sort of do that is through violent means and it at the end of the day it's kind of a little bit boring that we haven't got the imagination to sort of find other ways to do it or or that we don't create them without a violent element even you know the kids books that I used to you know used to read I still read a lot of kids science fiction and fantasy who am I kidding you know, I mean, even them, they, they tend to have sort of a violent piece, even something like, you know, a monster calls, which is quite, you know, it's a metaphorical piece for the most part. There still has to be that overcoming of violence in his real world and his um, sort of his imaginary life, whether or not it's against another person or not. But it seems like we have to have those pieces. It's just so rare that we see any of these kinds of stories without at least some kind of physical violence, despite there being more than enough personal personality conflicts that could drive a plot of any other kind of genre. I see what you're saying, and I think certainly the modern trend is very definitely for violence at the end. I mean, you just need to look at something like... um, the Lord of the Rings trilogy um, to sort of see that. But I was having a, a think and talking to my husband who reads and watches a lot more sci-fi than me. And the ones we came up with um, are both Moon, the, um, the the movie, the very short movie starring Sam Rockwell, which is excellent, and 2001, and also on a certain level, I Am Legend. And I would just hasten to add that is the book, not the terrible uh, film edition with Will Smith. Um, but if you think about those three things, they all as we get down to it, they all have a fight for survival and the violence is very, is very different. Um, but it, it's still kind of there. I mean, in 2001, you've got sort of um, Hal and Dave having that standoff and it's, it is still a standoff and it's still very violent. And it is a fight for survival, but it's not kind of fisticuffs and the big long punch up, as they say. Um, and I Am Legend has a lot of violence in it, but the final scene is kind of whether you know they're, they're building the gallows and he's kind of stuck in his house there's no big showdown but it's just filled with violence and the promise of violence so i think like i say it is it is as a motivator and i think it's always going to be there just because the fight for survival is always going to be one person against a computer one person against a corporation one person against you know a zombie whatever or a virus it's always going to be violent even if it is at a very subtle level like in 2001 or moon or i am legend i just think that in the the times of sort of um where you get sort of sci-fi action crossovers in the movies and certainly you know all the big the big books like the hunger games and things which are very action orientated i think it's just come back to being 
more um, obvious violence than perhaps more subtle things like Moon 2001 and I Am Legend, which are, yeah, they're a little while back now, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Well, I thought it was really interesting that you touched on um, threatened violence, because I, I often think that the threat, the kind of overbearing threat of violence is a lot more, you know, it gets me on the edge of my seat a lot more than, than watching the, the culmination of the threat of violence. Um, I just got back from seeing The Shape of Water today, uh, which was really, really good. And um, the, I was thinking that actually in relation to this, there's there's not there is violence in it but it's it's not hugely overwhelming violence and also the ending is quite um the, the violent part the shooting that there's some some shots are exchanged um that's really it happens very very quickly and it's not hugely kind of impactful what was keeping me kind of um, nervous and and worried for the characters was that you know the threat of death the threat of, of kind of imminent that everything was going to unravel but you, you knew it was coming and you knew that only this one character can stop it um and it's that part that I think that that kind of conflict um which really kind of worked for me rather than the the you know the actual bit where the shots are actually fired because I think maybe have we become inured to to seeing violence on our screens like is it just another gunfight well, for me, part of my problem is that a lot of these kind of violent culmination pieces end up being like large scale events. So I don't particularly enjoy reading or watching large battle scenes because I find them innately dull. And I know, you know, this might be controversial. I don't know. But what makes it interesting to me is how that peril or that conflict affects a single character so it always comes down to that sort of micro level and that's why I have kind of an issue with a lot of these set pieces because while it might filter through that character's perception it always comes down to kind of you know numbers it's always a numbers game and obviously I understand that war is like this and that's why you know war is hell but I don't really like just to see constantly this boiling down of big battles where you know hundreds and thousands of orcs die and it's just kind of there I, maybe I, i'm not sure if i'm being clear but like I, no no you are you are it's just, it's all about the personal yeah and i i just don't like having to constantly watch these things where we just sit back and accept that and it's not you know it it just seems to reiterate over and over that that this happens, that war is terrible and there's all these people die, but it doesn't really say anything. It doesn't really affect us anymore. It doesn't... Th- with these big set pieces, it's just more of this, oh, yes, well, hundreds die and, you know, that's just how it is. It's it's not actually affronting us with anything that makes us sit back and go, oh, hey, hang on a minute. This really is bad. Mm. Well, I think that's summed up in the two of the articles you sent around, Megan, because you sent one round um, from Tor.com for why science fiction needs violence. And another one by Richard Thomas um, from Storyville, the proper use of violence in fiction. And the Tor.com article made the point that I was making earlier, that extreme situations show us the real personality and that you need the violence to be realistic so that we feel the stakes and that we're invested in the ending. But then as Richard Thomas said when he was doing um, he was doing a writing course himself, and he was sort of going, 
well, do I really need this violence here? Or am I just being lazy? Am I using it as a crutch? Um, am I just using death or rape as a motivator just because it's easy? What if I take that out and look at it? So I think what we're probably coming around to is the idea that, yeah, we need violence. Um, we need it to be realistic. We need it to um, so that we can feel the stakes, so that we can really feel the characters and suffer with them and grow with them. And you don't get that unless you get extreme situations. But at the same time, I think it really is overused by people. And I think there's a lot of... Um, there's a real penchant these days for science fiction to be crossed over with action films. Mm. And you look at something, I mean, we, we're big fans of, of Starship Troopers in our house. Oh, it's me just too. So, yeah. yeah, it's just so <laughs> brilliant, the book and the, and the film. Um, but I mean, that's, that's the perfect crossover. It's kind of got science fiction there and action, and it is just mindless. But it is, you know, it's just throwing everything at the screen and going, well, we're going to, we're going to make you feel for these characters because we're just going to throw giant bugs at them that they can't possibly, you know, win against um sorry I'm, I'm digressing there but i think i think the idea that action is is stealing more and more into science fiction movies um and i know megan's our science fiction reader expert i don't know how that is certainly in relation to um science fiction books but the old old time science fiction books i've read have never been as fast-paced as some of the stuff you get these days and i think it is being violence and the big set pieces are being used an awful lot more just because it's expected rather than because it actually adds anything particular to the story. I think it's really interesting that it's expected um, because as a writer myself I, I asked myself this question thinking you know because I've got battles in my books and I've got fights and I thought well how could the story you know it is I don't think I could have left them out the kind of story it was it's it's too it follows too much in the footsteps of other books that I've read which have battles in them and even though I, I really don't enjoy writing fight scenes I really don't enjoy them very much and that's probably probably shows because my fight scenes aren't very long and I did have a comment from my editor saying is this it <laughs> and I was like oh I got bored <laughs> I don't... um because I yeah it's the ex it's the kind of like um meaty the meaty exchange of blows that really bores me because I think it's um Sebastian de Castell did a really great writing fight scenes workshop um which I thought was was really good game picked up quite a lot of tips from that which is and he was saying what kind of Megan was was touching on is that you have to make them personal you have to make the fights personal so even if you're writing a battle sequence which has it kind of the camera zooms out in a great cinematographic kind of vista and you see all these people having separate battles to make it interesting, you have to zoom in on one of those battles and to see how that person who's fighting for their life, um, how how they're feeling, what, you know, uh, sounds, sights, smells, and then it becomes interesting for a reader or a viewer. Yeah, I mean, well, ab absolutely. That is, yeah, what I was sort of getting at, that you have to have that that element to it. Like, uh, <laughs> a friend of mine sat me down and finally made me watch Gladiator after never having seen it. And oh, it's yeah. got a sad ending. I cry, <laughs> but I, I cry. The you know the film opens and he was just like, "Isn't this incredible?" I was like, "Well, not really, because I'm bored." Uh, <laughs> basically, you know, it opens with a massive battle, and I was like, "I don't care about any of these people yet." Mm, if you're yeah. gonna put in a battle, you need me to care about them because I'm going into this not knowing who I should care about or why, and why it's important that they don't die. Because you know, not not to make me sound really callous, like I should obviously immediately not want someone to die, but I just found 
that didn't work for me at all because I didn't have an emotional connection with any of those characters at that point. Whereas if it had come after that connection, Mm -hmm. I would have been far more invested. I think, again, it's going back to the idea of Richard Thomas, isn't it? When he said, is it lazy or is it a crutch? I mean, to me, the opening point of that battle is, I suppose, three three aspects. One is to look freaking awesome because, um, as I understand it, they filmed it in Kill the Forest and Kill the Forest wanted a mass of trees taking down and um, hacking back. And apparently the, the movie crew just came and went, oh, we'll do it. And so basically that is literal deforestation that you're looking at to, uh, you know, to specified standards and lengths. Um, so, I mean, there's, it's done on that, you know, for spectacle and to make you go, wow, although I appreciate it didn't work in Megan's case. Um, <clears throat> I think it's also to set the tone of the film. And I, I think the fact that Megan wasn't invested in it and it was confusing and it was loud and it was brash, I think to a certain extent that does give it an element of this is what war's like you don't know the person standing next to you it could be an enemy it could be anyone else you've just got to focus on on you know what's going on and i think the third and final point is um to show maximus as being um the best general that they could possibly be you know and riding through and having the, the confidence of his men but then we get back to the idea of richard thomas and going well is it actually just being used as a crutch i mean i think the first two points i made are valid but perhaps you know, if they weren't so inured with this whole idea of, you know, must have the big spectacle, they could probably have shown the same thing for Maximus on a more focused level than just going into, you know, massive crazy and blowing up, you know, half of Kill the Forest. But I do have to say, I do like that. I do like that beginning. I think it does work. So I must disagree with Megan on this one, as we disagree so much, Megan and I. <laughs> I mean, going back to that, that Tor.com article, what mm. I found really interesting and again you know i mean any time someone appeals to star trek as an example it's gonna gonna be star trek yeah well (laughs) it is you know it does work for me but um i just wanted to read this comment because i I really identified with it so it was you know if violence is indeed too clean and too perfect in fiction we cease to become afraid of it and tension doesn't work and i mean this for me is kind of what I feel like these big set pieces have become sure there's like blood splatters everywhere, but it has become too clean in a sense because it's just, it's done without feeling and that, you know, it removes us from the tension. It removes us from what makes the violence horrible. And that is why those things tend to really struggle to engage me. So I think that's why Grimdark is so popular, because it does take all of these things that are, if I say good about violence, you know what I mean, the the positives of putting violence within a novel and manages to maintain the personalities within it and to make it useful rather than just gratuitous. Well, let's move on to talking about um, gender in violence. Um, and it's, it's interesting that gladiators already um, popped up in the conversation, because Violence is often portrayed as a male arena. I mean, does the focus on a violent narrative conflict drive a poor representation of female characters? Because we have obviously talked about this a lot. There are um, pretty poor um, representations of women in these quite, you know, uh, conservative masculine um, genres. Is is there a relation between gratuitous violence or simply, you know, um, dominant violence and and poor female representation? 
So if I might go back to one of the points I made previously about the idea of being the fight for survival and going back to prehistoric times, I think that you're right, there is a lot of focus on the, the male arena. And I think because historically, it is the men who have gone out and done the fighting. Well, I should say historically, our perception of history is that they've gone out and done the fighting. Because even as I was writing this down and saying it was generally the men who took the risks and went to war, um, I then remembered, of course, they had that fantastic piece on Viking warriors that turned out all to be female, all these fantastic warriors in the grave when they actually examined the DNA and, and the bone structure and actually there's a load of women here. So I think our perception of it previously has been that it is the realm of men. But now you're getting things like, um, I think, I'm not seeing this, but I think black sails is supposed to be very good, the idea of women you know, being very up there and, and fighting. And then you've of course got the excellent um, Guns of the Dawn by Adrian Tchaikovsky, where he's going, well, women did go to war. What if there was a war exclusively with women because they'd kill before the men? Uh, and I think there's a lot more nowadays um, where women are stepping up to the front um, and are sort of taking on more proactive fighting roles because we're beginning to realise that actually, A, women are perfectly capable and B, history isn't as male-orientated as we thought. I find it interesting that something like military SF, you know, you'd think, okay, this is very traditional in its representation of military and all this kind of stuff. But I actually can think of quite a few examples where it's been quite inclusive. Um, so again, Starship Troopers, you know, women are kicking ass just as much as the men in that one. Um, oh, but are they? Oh, oh, Jesus oh really? Yeah. But then, you know, I could talk about Starship Troopers for ages. So sorry. <laughs> well, at least Keep it includes them and they are there fighting alongside the men. And I guess yeah, that's, but there's... that's the point that I'm, I'm trying to make there. That is true. Although I still feel that one of them is um, too much of a light interest, which is called, di not dizzy, but it's something like that. And at the end she goes, but it's okay because I got to have you. And it's like, that's so not the last words of a, of a kick-ass soldier. And only the woman would say that. And that did annoy me. Fair but apart from that, Starship Creepers is great. Yeah, fair enough. Um, but, you know, you've got also um, Melinda Snodgrass's work in Military SF. You've got things like um, Cameron Hurley's uh, We Are Legion, and, oh, I just thought of another one and it's just disappeared from my head. Anyway, <laughs> but, my, you know, my point is that there actually are um, some examples of where I, I guess, my own prejudice <laughs> against a certain subgenre would be to assume that they wouldn't include it. And yet it has been, which is which is kind of nice. But I definitely do think that having violence as the conflict, you know, ending the climactic conflict, it, it does lend itself to us looking at traditional, however, you know, wrong they might be uh, opinions of, you know, that, that men are the ones who fight. I think definitely it, it does potentially take away the opportunity for female representation. I would say that the perfect example of this would be Rogue One where you've got the woman going through and all the men are fighting around her and she never actually fires anything significant, including the fact that she's face to face with a bad guy and a, a bloke shoots him for her. And I'm like, yes, <laughs> let's, let's, let's not, you know, have any more of that in, in modern day cinema. Let's go with the, the better stuff that we've got. It's really interesting. Um, I was just thinking, like, what is it about violence that robs women of agency or at least our interpretation and our depiction of violence? 
I feel like this is also kind of tied up with, you know, the ideas of toxic masculinity and that, you know, this idea that men are physically strong and physically powerful. So when you have women committing the violence, that somehow emasculates any men that they are attacking or, you know, the, the men that they overcome. And... I wonder if it is, you know, very much tied up in in that. Mm, yeah, I think it's that's a really interesting point. Very probably. I mean, there's also the fact that if you think about some of the women who have been successful fighters in previous films and books, they have been really bulked up, and they are pretty much. Um, I think one of the uh, one of Megan's questions sort of said framed as aberrant and kind of like you know not your traditional masculinity. I mean, you've got. But um, better things like, I know Red Sparrow is going around cinemas at the moment. But I was thinking of Aliens. I mean, I love that film in so many ways. Um, but you have the one female Marine who is kind of really butched up. And it's like, well, why couldn't she just be normal? Why does she have to be looking like she's, she's Vasquez, that's it. Why does she have to look like she's one of the guys? Um, but I think, again, we are getting away from that an awful lot. And that's that's very, that's very good. It certainly seems to be something that you would see in sort of the the 80s and the 90s is that you couldn't be a, a strong woman without being um, framed as being like the men or alternatively you couldn't be a female fighter who was winning against the butch men like Megan says you had to have emasculated kind of um, guys that you fought against but I think I think we're definitely getting away from that um, with some modern day heroines. I don't know I'm because sorry. I was going to say that what are the implications of female driven violent narratives I mean a violent women framed as aberrant. I would look at that and I would put forward um, three three situations which I think it sort of proves and disproves itself. Um, the first one I have to steal from my husband because I was talking to him about it. And he used the example of um, Harry Potter. We've got Bellatrix Lestrange and Voldemort. And if you compare Bellatrix to Voldemort, she seems quite psychotic um, and he seems quite reasonable in a weird way. So he he at least has a purpose and a mission to his um, <clears throat> to his cruelty, whereas Bellatrix just seems to enjoy going around and, and hurting people for for free. And I mean, Helena Bonham Carter is not butched up. She is very definitely very sexy, very fey, very alluring, um, and yet completely psychotic. The other one I would use is Cersei, but I think it depends whether you're looking at her from the TV series or from um, the books. Now, in the TV series, she's kind of given a reason for being mad, which is that she desperately wanted children. Um, Robert Baratheon was very unkind when she miscarried. Um, and so she sought solace in the arms of her brother. And we all know the story from there. But in the books, it's shown that she is actually quite psychotic from an early age. And yes, she is in a weird, twisted way, a loving mother, but that's not her main motivator. Her main motivator, she's just psychotic. And again, it's certainly in the books, She's very definitely seen as aberrant, um, a bit like Bellatrix, but in the movie, uh, sorry, in the TV series, she's seen as more reasonable. Um, and then the final two ones I think get it spot on are um, The Hunger Games with Katniss, who's a bit grumpy and, you know, a bit angsty, but what teenage girl isn't, and is generally excellent, kicks ass, and seems to be reasonably well-balanced and empathetic. Um and then, of course, the other one, which um, Lucy will give a little cheer at, is, of course, um, Jen Williams's Copper Cats. Yay! <laughs> Told you. Um, who is, 
kick ass, still manages to be alluring and have, you know, good, strong sex drive, um, has proper loyalties, proper sympathies, isn't insane in any way whatsoever, and is basically just female hand solo. And I think there is there's a lot of um, aberrant women um, that we can still see nowadays, but I think there's also a lot more coming out, particularly in books, where they seem to be a little bit more um, a little bit more balanced, um, managing to retain femininity, but also kicking ass in their own particular way. The one thing that I would sort of pick up with that is that in those narratives, those characters are still kind of seen as aberrant. So Katniss, you know, because she doesn't want children, because of the way she acts, people do find her aberrant throughout the entire story. And the same with the uh, copper cat, you know, the the people in that world perceive her as an aberration. So Ah, but do you think that's more because they're mercenaries? You know, not mm, heroes. I don't know. It's it's gonna gonna say- a bit funny when they do things for money, you know. Because I, I, I think this came up in a review that I read of that of Copycat, and there was some reviewer complaining that they found it, um, they found it uh, unpalatable that the three so-called heroes only saved the world for money, <laughs> and that, and I was like, but that's the reason I like the book. Cause yeah, I liked that too. <laughs> But we go back to the idea of Han Solo. The only reason he saved Princess Leia and, you know, joined the rebellion and everything was for money. It's it's all the same principle. But I, I'd have to come back at Megan and say that particularly Katniss, um, and I, I will bow to anybody's more recent readings of the book, but I remember it in the book, certainly being that Katniss was the one who was hardest on herself. Everybody else saw her as a hero. They saw her as someone to hold up who was fantastic and who was brilliant. She was the one going, but I'm not a whole person. I am I'm mentally damaged. I'm physically damaged, whatever. And she was always hardest on herself, whereas actually the people around her were really accepting of her and really bolstered her up. Um, and when it comes to Copper Cat, yeah, I think I think it was recognised that um, uh, Widrim was different. But I also quite like they all just accepted it. And it's like, oh, yeah, it's you. And you're a bit of an aberration, but you're also one of us. Um, and we dislike you on equal terms and we're not going to see you as particularly weird because you're a woman just a bit annoying that i'm not explaining it very well but I, and whether lucy would agree with me on that that they because like say they're all mercenaries and they're all in it for the money she's just another one of them yeah well do you want to go on to talk a little bit about um non-violent narratives and whether non-violent narratives are viewed peculiarly as feminine narratives i mean do we have to gender these do we have to gender narratives what i find interesting is you know when you come back to the you know sort of the original thing of uh, that science fiction fantasy horror tend to use this violence in their conflict and when you compare that to something like literary fiction you don't have that same kind of thing you know a lot of the stories don't have violence at all and it's you know very personal drama but then you do still get the kind of gendering of those stories in and of itself you have things like you know when people call them kitchen sink dramas or you know if it's if it's about anything to do with the the lives of women you know it it becomes a woman's story and you know anything if it's about say however i feel like it's a lot of them where it's about you know men having affairs or that kind of thing you know that's a very male story and it's interesting then that when you come to, to science fiction and fantasy and horror, you, 
we look at these and that they all have this kind of, I mean, not all of them, as we've discussed, but the vast majority have these violent climaxes. And without them, I do think that they would be considered quite feminine. Yeah, the the only ones that aren't are quite cerebral and then they're kind of playing off the kind of thriller, very slow-burning kind of style story like Charlotte was talking about with things like 2001. But again, those stories tend, the ones that I can think of as an example, you know, they tend to have male protagonists at the heart of it. And, you know, I just, I wonder what it would be like with telling one of those kinds of slow, bubbling stories without massive amount of violence as a a climactic point with a female character, what that would be like. I mean, other than Arrival, I can't really think of many examples. Patricia McKillop, if you've um, ever read any of Patricia McKillop's books, I always quote her as a great example of how not to do um, violence. Like, in, I mean, as in, she's really good at, at avoiding violence and um, avoiding any kind of use of gratuitous battle scenes. Um, and yet uh, she does write... Her fantasy is quite lyrical. Um, you could say it's feminine, uh, because, but only because she uses a lot of women in her books. Um, but the Riddlemaster trilogy, Riddlemaster's Game, um, that one is is a fantasy masterwork, and it's completely falls into the category of epic fantasy. And yet, the whole story kind of manages to be um, unviolent, and I, I every time I think of this, I try and go back over and try and work out exactly what that means to say that but it's so different from any other epic fantasy by on on battle sequences like that it, it's i think when you were talking about it being cerebral um maybe it is it's it's, it's a bit more it's, it's definitely more of a kind of thinking person's fantasy uh, i mean like it raises a lot of really interesting questions it's not sensationalist and i wonder whether that's that kind of sensationalism that's come maybe come out of Hollywood has you know we naturally associate that with with male driven narratives and with violence well for those of us who are writers among here or, or interested in sort of those kind of things um the one thing that occurred to me was Joseph Campbell's the hero's journey and mm-hmm. then the subsequent heroine's journey that have um, that's sort of popped up for those who aren't aware of it Joseph Campbell um wrote various essays and things and he, one of the things he postulated was that there's a story that you see time and again called the hero's journey and I think the best example is Star Wars um uh, it's got various different uh, so in the hero's journey has got various different elements to it you google it on wikipedia there's you know a good little article giving you all the things but basically it's a boy goes out into the world, loses his actual parents, finds a sort of mentor figure, um, goes through some self-doubt, finds an enemy, um, gets over his self-doubt, finds some, you know, fantastic power, quite often with a quest for a magical object or something, um, and then has a great big showdown, which, of course, goes with this whole thing that we've been saying about, you know, the whole quest has to end with a big fight and a big showdown between um the light and dark between the light and dark yeah between the hero Um, and cough cough harry potter (laughs) also yeah also applies perfect example but then then after um joseph camp several years after joseph camp's the hero's journey some people have popped up um and i can't remember the names i do apologize to them but they've also postulated the heroine's journey which is more kind of 
spiritual makes it sound wrong, but it's more sort of discovering yourself. And you do still kind of have a mentor, but it's more rejecting your beliefs or rejecting society and the constraints they put on you. And I can kind of see why they've written it. But I think the fact that we've had the heroes and the heroines journey and sort of had those two different journeys linked in a gender way. And I mean, at the bottom of every heroine's journey article I read, it said, this can also be applied to a guy, you know, and at the bottom of the hero journey these days, you just said, this can also be applied to a woman. But I think we are quite stuck in our mindsets of what is the hero's journey and the heroine's journey. And I'll make you all roll your eyes when I say, you know, you can see that in fairy tales. If you look at fairy tales from around the world, quite often it's the guy going out to seek something, um, to, you know, get some famous something and defeat the bad guy. Whereas for the women, the women's tales, when they do feature as the heroine, are usually about guile and cunning and trying to overcome an oppressor or something like that. So, I mean, even, you know, back in all these, in these times, we have had this whole idea of women have very different um, journeys to men when it comes to literary things. And if I can just say that I think that that's why Doctor Who was so brilliant and I'm all for female representation, but I'm quite sad that we have a female doctor because to me, Doctor Who has always been undergoing what we would call the heroine's journey. He's always kind of, you know, trying to find a very non-aggressive outcome to very violent and hostile situations. And I think that's something that's often left to women. And I think it's fantastic that you've got a, a guy doing it. Um, and I kind of, on the one hand, it's great for all these girls who would like to see a female doctor. And I'm totally, you know, that's totally great. But on the other hand, I kind of feel that young lads don't have many heroes that try to think their problems through rather than just, you know, go at it um, with sword and, and knife or whatever. Whereas the thing about Doctor Who, certainly the newest reincarnations of Doctor Who, he's always been about using his brain and trying to overcome society's morals and convince people around him of the best thing to do. Is this where I bring up my love for MacGyver and Richard Dean Anderson? Oh, please do. <laughs> well, because, you know, back in the day, um, I, I I won't watch the new reincarnation of it because ugh. but uh so macgyver didn't like to use guns uh he didn't really like to use violence occasionally he had to but yeah he was all about thinking on his feet and he you know using his brain to find other ways to overcome a dire situation and it was brilliant and we we need more doctor who's and more macgyvers i think in current <laughs> books and current cinemas and also some more you know because we're going there with the, the female action here as i think we're definitely getting there i just think we need to balance it out with some more some more thinky guys as well. But do you think perhaps, uh, so when it comes to these kind of more uh, thinking person's stories, I mean, do you think that perhaps that alienates some male viewers or readers? Or is it just that we we do have this kind of trend and people are doing you know, the, the violent set pieces just because it's expected, that it's become the norm? I mean, is there a reason why we're doing it other than just expectations or, or have we all just become really lazy? Mm, I think we've become really lazy. <laughs> Easy to, to copy what has come before. Um, if something's made money before, if something looks like it's popular, then let's just do it again in a new incarnation, um, which kind of explains the state of the film's that are mostly in the cinema coming out. It's just, just generally, I mean, I think you get like maybe 5% of them are decent. The rest of them are kind of rehashes of stuff that we've already seen. And um, I think the violence narrative is probably a great example of that. My dad likes to go on about this um, kind of ad nauseum, really. He really hates, uh, he hates any kind of violence, um, 
in television or in films. He gets really bored of it. And he also thinks that it's, um, you know, that it's gratuitous and that, you know, it doesn't serve any purpose. While I, I'm not quite as, I don't come down as strict as that. Um, I think violence can serve many purposes. I do think that we have come to rely on it much um, to... Uh, it's a bit like the the article we were talking about earlier um that it, it's a crutch that it you know if you ha- if you feel like you have to open a book w- with a battle scene then you know you're not doing your job as a writer i feel like that's sensationalism that you're relying on sensationalism to kind of do your work for you rather than than you know actual um you know introducing you know real people that that a reader could come to care about well i think there's a trend that i could you know, talk about in in horror, which hopefully we'll we'll move on to later um, in relation to torture porn and things like that. If you come back to all the really good stories, as we say, they boil down to something we can all relate, characters we can all relate to, and the fight for survival. And I think you tend to, moviegoers and book readers tend to have cycles and they will hit on something that is really brilliant and is done really well and that gets all of these elements really right. And then everybody else will go, let's try and do more of that but let's make more peril and bigger monsters and, and better things. Um, and I think I think if you get something that's done really well, like take, for example, Alien. That's a perfect example. So the first Alien was brilliantly done, very tense. You had, was it about six people against an alien on a spaceship? Um, and then when it came to the sequel, you kind of got James Cameron, well, how am I going to beef it up? Well, I want more Aliens. But on the same time, I'll balance it out with Marines who are obviously, you know, better equipped and better trained. But it'll all still, you know, end up with just Ripley surviving. And I think you get something similar with with films and with books. You go, oh, well, this worked really well. So let's do it again. But we've got to do it better this time. So let's just put more violence in it and things like that. And I think you then get really good stories that just get extrapolated beyond belief. Like Lucy says, it's kind of it just gets lazy because the one thing you can rely on is big show stopping scenes that will sell books or sell films. And then it just kind of goes, you know, on and on until it just gets ridiculous. And then the new craze comes in because people have had their fill of violence. And then something really thinky and clever comes along. And everybody's like, oh, I really like that. And then the whole cycle starts again. Well, I think this it kind of brings us on. We've already been talking about um, when does violence become gratuitous violence? Um, and, and how how accurate is it in depicting the world that we actually live in. Um, I was having a really interesting um, conversation with my sister about this, and she said that uh, we we're talking about video games, um, games like Call of Duty, the, the the kind of first-person shooters, the ones that you know put you in Afghanistan, like on the ground, very realistic, give you actual weapons that actually exist. Um, in short, the kind of games that I don't play because <laughs> I don't really like guns and they're too a bit too um, modern for me. Um, but those kind of games, I mean, have long been criticised by worried parents that you know it's going to it's going to cause you know um, you know it's, it's basically going to add to real violence and it's going to you know make children go out and think that it's okay to blow someone's brains out and stuff. And this has been going on for quite some time ever since you know the gaming industry um really began booming um but she mentioned uh, my sister said that uh, she was reading an article about um the the navy in america were having trouble recruiting um because and they've got something like 15,000 and don't quote me on this like they had 15,000 uh, spots like vacant because uh, the recruitment was was so bad was so low and that the, this article was talking about linking this low level of recruitment to the rise in realistic um 
you know, shooters. So where, you know, a, a player would find themselves, you know, in a real world, you know, simulation um, and be like, you know, <laughs> fuck that you know i'm not i don't want to actually go and and be a soldier and be in this situation because the violence is so horrible and you can see people's legs being blown off and i don't want that to happen to me so that presented a really interesting counter argument to the one where you know you say oh well our kids are being ruined by the violence in their games yeah well i mean that comes back to you know this like that idea of when violence is too clean you know when you do get these video games that show you how terrifying and brutal war really is it makes people stop thinking about it in that kind of glorified oh we're gonna go off to war and protect our country and like i'm sorry no i don't want to be blown up and i don't want my mates to get blown up and this is all shit and yeah i definitely think that there is that is a good reason to include violence that there is that part but i I don't know how you can tell where that line is. I mean, I just watched um, Netflix's Altered Carbon series, which, I mean, I watched the whole thing because once I start something, I tend to just binge it and that's just what I do. But there's, I think it's about the eighth episode and there's this long, protracted scene where two women are just beating the shit out of each other and it's it's so gratuitous but if that weren't enough one of them is naked the entire time and you know what i might not be able to easily tell you where the line is but i can tell you that that one was gratuitous there was no point for that other than titillation oh good pun sorry (laughs) i would just like to point out to megan that i read an article the other day about how, oh, I wish I'd, I'd copied it now, how there was one woman um, high up in, in royal society of a particular country that was offended by something another woman said and challenged her to a, bare-fest, a bare-breasted duel. Uh, two girls, um, no clothes and um, and swords, so that they could eat um, naked so that they could more easily you know, make the cuts and, and see where it was run through those huge skirts. But there, but there was only women allowed to watch. So, you know, there, there's clearly some historical um, uh, some historical evidence that this could could possibly happen. But I'm guessing uh, possibly they didn't intend it to be broadcast to um, millions of people. <laughs> and not only women, it's clearly totally a male fantasy, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it is. But it did actually happen. So, you know, you've got to give the guys some, some credit somewhere. Mm, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) not convinced I mean for me personally I think it goes back to once again the Tor.com article and the Rich Thomas article that you do need violence to be realistic so you can feel the stakes um, particularly if you're doing an immersive video game but at the same time do you necessarily need that level of violence is it just being used because that is the current hot thing you know you're just using it because it's making it more violent will beat the previous game that was out last month that you know wasn't quite as violent or didn't kill people in as interesting a way yeah and it's interesting when you look at sort of um arguments where people say you know oh stylized violence is better because it's not as brutal and then you think well but then isn't it taking away from that so things like uh matthew vaughan's films so things kick ass um and kingsman you know that's very stylized and very brutal but you're never quite in there you don't really feel anything when that that violent ha- violence happens and it's 
yeah, it does become questionable. Is, is should you be doing that? Should violence ev- really ever come around and you know be shown as almost funny in some ways? And and I'd like to caveat that by saying that I actually really like both those films that I mentioned. But yeah, it it does does raise an interesting interesting question. And talking about one of the articles that Megan sent around by Fantasy Faction is is violence and fantasy less um, confronting. And they did make the valid point that fantasy violence and fantasy horror is generally more allowed for younger viewers because fantasy does make it um, more easy to distance ourselves from it than sort of real life, um, uh, real life horror and violence. Um, And particularly when you've got heroes and magic, that kind of violence then becomes both dramatic and symbolic. So it's sort of tragedy and triumph versus plain old blood and gore. And I think, you know, that if you look at the trends, that in itself is is, is quite accurate. Mm. There's quite a lot of blood and gore in, you know, hacking with pike staffs and swords, which is kind of the traditional way that fantasy battles are fought. So uh, there's quite a lot of gore. But I, I do grant that there's something about fantasy and maybe because it's a retrospective genre so we already have the sense of looking backwards uh meaning that maybe on a kind of subconscious level yeah the violence is not quite as imminent and and bloodthirsty and 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 torturous and and kind of doesn't make you squirm quite as much as it is maybe something like you know seeing it on call of duty would or watching something that's set you know now or in you know the science in, in a science fiction film well, with my daughter, when we watch films, um, I mean, she's a huge big fan of um, things like uh, Strange Magic. Um, she really likes that and quite often will, you know, role play the sword fights that, that come into it. But we do we do kind of have conversations like, oh, mummy, you know, that, that man hit that girl. And I'm like, well, if you ever find yourself in a troll infested wood where somebody is trying to kill you, then yes, you may hit somebody. Um, and we really struggle with Frozen because at the end of Frozen, spoiler alert, sorry, the end of Frozen, Anna turns around and punches, um, oh, it's got hands and knocks him over the edge of the boat. And went quite early on, my daughter said to me, but mommy, you're not supposed to hit boys. And I was like, actually, she's quite right. And I can't sort of say there was anything magical or fantasy about this that, you know, they, they weren't elves or trolls or bog kings or anything like that that I could excuse it was what it was a woman hitting a man and the the answer I came up with was well if anybody ever tries to shut you in a room and leave you to die then yes you can you know punch them off the edge of a boat but it did make it far more difficult for me to explain it to her than it did to something that was purely fantasy it's like well it's just fantasy that's you know that's what happens in fantasy compared to yeah I kind of see why you would why you would look at Anna and go she's just like me Am I allowed to hit boys and punch them over the edge of ships? It's a very valuable lesson, I think. Learning that handsome men can be complete bastards too. <laughs> yeah, but I don't want my my daughter going to the handsome boys in the class and punching them because that's what she thinks. Oh uh, yeah, uh, yeah. But the um, boys in the class aren't bastards. Yeah, hopefully. well, the boys in the class probably haven't just tried to have her killed. So. Exactly. But that that is the only way I could you know, sort of explain it. Any. Any violence that is less than that, I would really struggle with. Mm. Um, but it's just the fact that the stakes were so high and that he had tried to kill her that it was acceptable to explain it to my daughter. Anything less, like, oh, he's just been mean to her. Or, you know, if it had been, for example, in Tangled, I think there must be some point in, when, in the bar scene where, you know, one of the guys punches the other guy. 
And you're like, well, is that allowable? <laughs> it's like there's, there's kind of levels. Luckily, Disney manages to be so soft and sappy, it stays away from it. But I wonder how long it will be before we do encounter something where it's just two unpleasant people having a bit of a punch up. And it's like, um, just because they're horrid and that's not what you do. One thing we haven't touched upon, of course, is the horror genre, uh, which um, which obviously uses violence in, a, in you know, it, it's an intrinsic part because you know it's the whole genre is there to make us feel uncomfortable um probably in, in a way that you know science fiction and fantasy doesn't necessarily um do so so um charlotte you i i hear you have some thoughts to share on uh, torture porn i do <laughs> don't, don't put that down as a quote so yes i mean we're again going back to the idea of fighting for survival which megan brushed on right at the beginning saying that horror is definitely where you get more violence and that kind of thing and it is. I mean, you look at pretty much any horror movie and it's, it's peril ramped up to the max. Um, and you get things like, I mean, my favourite is um, the Cabin in the Woods, um, which I've just been rewatching and I mentioned last time as well. And the idea of fighting for survival against not only zombies, but also the system. But then you get to um, extremes um, in books at the moment. What seems to be quite popular is extreme horror. Um, and in movies, what you get that is quite popular, or actually used to be quite popular, but thankfully is falling out of a phase at the moment, is torture porn. So thinking about extreme horror, so um, one of my friends is Matt Shaw, known to his fans as The Matt Shaw. And he writes um, books that have no cover art at all. Are just They're called the black cover books because they just have plain black covers with the title and a warning at the bottom. And we interviewed, obviously, Dawn Kane right back at the beginning of... Um, of our podcast she's a, a female uh, extreme horror author and they are basically just violence personified it's just I, I mean I will fully admit to anybody out there that it is not my cup of tea and I I haven't read it which is why I went to the Matt Shaw and asked him about it and I asked him a, a few questions and he kind of gave me some answers um, and he said when it comes to violence is, I asked him is there anything that is unacceptable or untouchable in extreme horror because obviously in you know, in films and in book, normal books, horror books, you get stuff that you just, you don't go anywhere near. But his answer was anything, because that's the point of extreme horror. It's supposed to be very extreme. And um, to him personally, he said violence to animals was really a, a no-no for him, but he will still rest in if necessary for the story. And I asked him what about, because we were talking earlier about, you know, men and women and, <clears throat> excuse me, where women more uh, sorry involved in less violent plot lines and i must admit that extreme horror seems to have a much better gender balance um and matt's reply was well i write men doing violence to men and women or women doing violence to men and women it all depends on the story but i've had some women do some brutal stuff to men in my books uh, and he's he makes the point that his extreme horrors are based in the real world um so it could be a disgruntled woman turning on a husband or on a boss or on co-workers and he kind of felt that rather than making people aberrant that you were it was much more scary to have normal people doing really really bad things and he said i don't go out of my way to make them abnormal the whole point is that they are scary they could be the person you're sitting next to um and i think that is obviously something that extreme horror has gotten onto the idea that you could catch the bus and see the same person every day and not realize that they were an axe murderer um and it's something that we all no, not, not all think about, it, but it is, you know, particularly in times at the moment where there's a lot of hostility and the media is hyping up all sorts of biases against all sorts of different people. 
it obviously speaks to a lot of people at this time. And horror has very, very often been political commentary. You know, the fear of the person standing next to you, whatever color their skin, whatever gender they are, that they could just be a raging nutter. Um, but even even Matt, when I asked him about it, said violence in all my books has to have a point to it. Otherwise, it's just boring. Violence for the sake of violence um, is just from authors lacking imagination. Everything must have a place and a point. So even in extreme horror with, um, I was going to give examples, but I really don't want to in case I offend anybody, but really, truly terrible stuff going on. But even there, the authors are looking at it and going, well, does my violence have a point? Does it have a, a real meaning behind it and things like that? So that's obviously the, the written side of it and um, horror from that point of view. But torture porn was something that came out. Um, I I saw a little bit when it first came out, the perfect example being Saw. The Saw, I was going to say trilogy, but it's expanded to a franchise now. The first Saw was excellent. It was um, it had what was described, I read described as a labyrinthine plot. And it was five or six different characters who were all given a choice. Either you do this really terrible thing or you will die. And it all, it was just so beautiful to watch it all, um, all come about. And it was little violences, little acts of, of violence or cruelty that ended up being a huge act of violence and cruelty and ended up ruining so many people and just kind of escalated. And I think that was kind of the, the brilliance about it, that it was little things that it was just little indiscretions that then built up and we could all kind of see where it was going and then at the end you were so drawn in with the characters that when the the inevitable saw bit came along which is literally a saw and a character's foot I remember sitting there going oh my god don't do it even as I was kind of willing him to do it because I knew what the outcome was and that was using horror uh, sorry using violence within horror to a particular point and with a particular idea in mind but it then went on to things like um Hostel and um, Wolf Creek, which I I watched and I oh I just hated it. I've not seen Hostel. I've not seen Hostel. I've not seen Human Centipede because I've seen enough of this torture porn element to know that it's not my cup of tea. Um, and so, with that in mind, I turned to um, the Popverse uh, reviewer, who I know has seen a few bits, which is Fenton, um, and we were having a chat about it over over Facebook, um, and we were talking about why. It, prove so popular and I think there were two elements to it I think there's always the the gladiatorial idea that we've all been fascinated by violence and we love you know it being carried out and I think in hostel there was um elements of society within it so the idea of hostel is that people were kidnapped taken to a hostel and other people could pay to torture them um and if you were an American it cost the most to torture you because of various society implications at the time and again it's this whole idea that the horror film and um is fertile ground for political commentary. But the thing about these films is they created a sort of a, a very low bar for entry. They're very cheaply made. I think they've grossed massive amounts compared to the huge, you know, horror blockbusters. Um and they were really good at the beginning, but it comes back to the point I made previously that you get this really good idea. And then it's just extrapolated beyond belief. Um, and as Fenton put it, um, after a point, the taboo effect is completely lost. And all you're left with is repetitious content with weak characters and increasingly absurd plots that defy engagement. And that's kind of where torture porn went. And I don't know whether they kept churning it out because it was popular or because that's just kind of what they, they got used to. It's like, oh, well, it was popular like, you know, two or three years ago. Um and interestingly enough, I read a, um, 
I read a, an article that said that they are actually releasing a reboot of Saw or something, but they've taken it back to the original. They've tried to take it back to the original. They made it more lighthearted, if you can make torture porn lighthearted. Sorry, you can't see my quotes when I say lighthearted, <laughs> doing, the, doing the finger air quotes. Um, but the idea is that it's supposed to be more fun. Again, the finger quotes. Um, and the article I read by Benjamin Lee in The Guardian said that previously movies were about escapism. And in this current environment we don't really want to go and see people being tortured previously when everything was happy and, and funky we were happy to indulge in this whereas now life is a bit crummy and we're all sort of up in arms and you know person neighbor against neighbor and nobody really wants to go and see people being tortured anymore but the one thing to remember about torture porn is it's not really isolate an isolated phenomenon as Fent and I were discussing um, it's taking a niche part of horror and putting it into the mainstream. So you had the same thing with video nasties in the 1980s. I remember when I was a kid, um, when you guys probably weren't even around yet, um, video nasties was a big thing, and whether, you know, whether people would allow kids to watch it. Um, and when I was a kid, there was a big uproar about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and whether that made people beat each other up in the, the playground and whether video nasties were responsible for all sorts of deaths and things like that. And that kind of died away. And then we've had torture porn, um, which again has kind of died away again. So it makes you wonder if there's going to come a point where we're going to have yet another form of violence, real extreme violence in some form or another, that will come up. Um, and I mean, even the video nasties in the 1980s, things like Nightmare on Elm Street and things like that, they still almost had a sense of fun to them, a sense of, I mean, anyone who's seen Nightmare on Elm Street, it, it is violent, it is bloody, it is nasty, but there's also a kind of cartoonish comic uh, not comic as in funny, comic as in comics that you read, element to it. So I wonder whether something like that will, will come back again or whether we've had our fill of it. I seriously doubt it because I think, like I say, things do tend to come around in cycles and I think something as good as Saw will come back again. I don't think it will be the reboot, but I think something will come along um, and will be very violent but in a new and interesting way and that will grab readers readers or moviegoers attention and then it will start the cycle all over again and it will just go on into absurdity but just before I finish I would just like to say that I did find a really interesting um, article on um, ad age about Courtney Solomon gave an interview and he's done a film called wrist cutters and apparently part of the marketing campaign because obviously marketing is a big thing these days um, was about character cutouts that they would have hanging from trees or suspended from bridges as if they were really, truly um, committing suicide. And he, he said he got about a 1,000 letters from anti-suicide groups, but he, in the article at least, he said that he was going to turn it around and he was going to reach out to them and send them screeners because what he actually wanted to do was take this really violent movie and send out an anti-suicide message. So he was going to send screeners to all these groups and then try and get feedback. And I don't know whether um, how accurate this is. I don't know whether this is actually going on and whether that's his intention and whether it's happening. But it did make me think that maybe there is a purpose, even to the most extreme violence within film and movie, whether it can be a talking point, whether it can be used to dissuade people, like we were talking about with the video games earlier, dissuading people um, from joining up in the army. So violence is undeniably a part of ourselves, our fight mechanism, which activates when we need it the most. But there's no denying we've come to rely on it as a crutch in our stories to fill a plot or a narrative gap, which would be better filled with a deeper consideration of character. 
Perhaps going forward, we ought to be creating or supporting stories that re-examine the nature of violence itself and the various roles it plays in our society.